policemen daily meet us at our work and demand a sight of our residence tickets. Hundreds of our unfortunate countrymen have been taken away from their daily avocations and marched through the public streets in, custody of, in the custody of police officers like common felons to prison because they were too poor to pay for a licence. These are the words written on a significant archive found in the Victorian State Collection. It's a petition from Chinese gold diggers complaining of unfair conditions on the gold fields. Our Chinese ancestors came to Australia in search of gold, and like many Europeans, they came in the mid-1800s. However, they faced harsher conditions, higher taxes, and constant racial tension. Things really flared up when they demonstrated their alluvial mining skills, finding gold on the surface soil, or they were also particularly skillful at sifting through the tailings of abandoned mines. By 1858, an estimated 33,000 Chinese were working the goldfields in Victoria, which is not a small number given the entire population of the state was around 500,000 at the time. My name's Kate Follington and you're listening to the podcast Look History in the Eye, produced by Public Record Office Victoria, the archive of the state government. 100 kilometres of public records about Victoria's past are carefully preserved in climate-controlled vaults. We meet the people who dig into those boxes, look history in the eye and bother to wonder why. Anna Chi is our guest today, and she's an historian from Sovereign Hill Museum in Ballarat, and she's written several articles on why Chinese petitions preserved here at the archives are important in understanding the voices of our Chinese ancestors and their fight for equality. This episode is a recording of a presentation Anna did alongside the original petitions, which we put on display for History Month in 2022. The Chinese immigrants who came here to seek gold predominantly came from an agricultural background, but they did participate in mining during agricultural slack seasons. So they weren't entirely inexperienced in terms of um, mining and their use of water in terms of um, washing the gold and, you know... um, accessing the gold, shallow alluvial gold, would have, from an agrarian background would have come in useful as well. Um, some of them probably would have come from China as well, from the Californian gold rushes, so experience there. So the Chinese immigrants weren't entirely um, inexperienced in alluvial mining, um, in quartz mining perhaps, but not uh, um, alluvial mining. And... The thing about shallow alluvial mining, it was called easy gold because it required very little skill. Um, you didn't, it didn't require a significant amount, of ca- significant amount of capital to get involved, like you had to buy a, a shovel, pan, um, you know, maybe a wheelbarrow, um, a puddle bucket. There wasn't that much money involved, so that's why it's portrayed as that democratic metal because anyone can have a go at doing it. The Chinese were not just seen as an economic threat, they were also considered to be a cultural threat as well. Recognising these fears and concerns about the Chinese immigration, the Victorian government took steps 
to restrict the number of Chinese coming into the colony and to discourage them from coming here. If you arrived in Victoria in 1855, you would have been expected to pay a 10-pole immigration tax on landing. Now, that's even before you have the chance to start to look for gold. When you arrive on the gold fields, you would be also expected to live in a separate Chinese protectorate camp and pay a protection ticket, pay for a protection ticket. On top of that, you also, like all other miners, expected to pay for a miner's right. You could avoid the immigration poll tax by landing in Robe, South Australia, and travelling overland. 400 kilometres, the journey would have taken you, but it was risky. Many died and some suffered, um, and many suffered ill health as well. By 1857, it looks as though things are getting harsher. Now, by this time, um, you can't travel overland, or well, discouraged from travelling overland from South Australia because the South Australian government has also implemented the £10 landing tax um, in that colony. There's also the introduction of a residence ticket. Now, you can't purchase a residence ticket unless you can show proof that you paid the immigration ticket, um, the £10 immigration tax as well. So it's that attempt to catch those who haven't paid. And if you fail to have pay for a residence ticket, you could have your mining claim or businesses taken from, we, from you. The miner's right or a business licence were basically null and void if you didn't have a residence ticket. So the penalties are quite harsh. In 1859, the legislation's amended once again, and you could be fooled into thinking that it's becoming a bit easier. The residence tax is reduced to £4 per annum, and it's amalgamated with a protection ticket and the miner's right. However, this reduction is backed up by harsher penalties. Chinese who didn't have a residence ticket could be sentenced to jail or to do public works. To get a sense of just how oppressive the um, taxes were that were imposed on the Chinese, let's compare it to another tax that the miners protested against in the first half of the 1850s, the gold licence. Protesting against this licence eventually led to the Eureka Rebellion. In the lead-up to the Eureka Rebellion, the miners were paying £1 per month, amounting to £12 per annum. As you can see, in the first year of um, arrival, Chinese, the Chinese taxes were on par with the goldfields licence. By 1857, it's far above that at £18 per annum. And in 1859, there's a reduction to £14. However, it's still not as low or on par with the gold licence tax. So, Western Bate, the historian, claims that the Chinese were the most fiercely taxed members of the community and they would have been justified in their own Eureka Rebellion. As you can see from this cartoon here, which is more likely dated at 18, like around 1859 or prior to the introduction of the 1859 legislation, um, the, in the minds of the people of the time, they're making connections to the harsh implementation of taxes that were endured during the re, before the Eureka Rebellion. So, did the Chinese protest? They certain, although it's not an episode of our history that's um, 
remembered to the same extent or celebrated to the same extent. The Chinese, in fact, did protest. They, there were many different forms of protest that they used. They evaded the taxes. They held mass meetings on the goldfields, such as Ballarat, Castlemaine and Bendigo. And they sent petitions to the governor and the legislative assembly throughout the latter half of the 1850s. Now, this is when the, when the legislation's introduced as well as every time that it's changed. They also practiced civil disobedience in the latter half of the 1850s, around 1859, where they refused to pay the re residence tax and offered themselves up for arrest. I um, imagine that this is, relates to the 1859 legislation because you can see the Chinese being um, basically imprisoned in the back buildings there, where the previous penalties related to um, claim jumping or stealing, taking people's mining claims. Okay, I'm going to focus on one particular element of the Chinese protest today, the petitions. And um, these petitions are quite significant because historical records that document the Chinese experience are rare. So what happens is that we're often left with the dominant Western perception of the Chinese. By looking at these petitions, we can see the past through a different lens. We're going to focus on how do these petitions challenge racial stereotypes about the Chinese and highlight the diverse experience of the Chinese in Victoria during the 1850s. Okay. During the 1850s, there was a perception that the Chinese didn't understand democratic processes and they didn't have democratic aspirations. So... Um, these petitions challenge this perception in every way. The fact that the Chinese organised these petitions and sent them to the Legislative Assembly and the government and, in, and also in terms of their content. They were basically arguing for the right to be treated the same as every other immigrant in the colony. They weren't um, wanting to special privileges at all. And over the latter half of the 1850s, the arguments that they used to defend this right to be treated equally evolved. So in 1856, they're claiming that the laws, the legislation, are a violation of the fundamental law of the British Constitution that guarantees equality before the law. It's also, they also point out that there's an absence of similar laws in other British colonies and removal of similar laws in California. So they're like saying, well, you're the only colony doing this. Um, and there's that sense of, I guess, shaming in a way. In 1857, the legislation is still seen as a contradiction to British law. And but this time it's merged with um, the sense of being seen as close to the British identity and British, and British values. So in, in implementing these laws, they're saying, well, how British are you? You're going against your own values. By 1859, some of the petitions are arguing that the taxes, are, um, the unfair discriminatory legislation is actually contravening treaties signed between Britain and China coming out of the Opium Wars which guarantee reciprocal rights to the Chinese when they visit um, British colonies. 
The petitions also, in the petitions, the Chinese also um, used them not just to defend their rights but to um, respond to accusations that were used to fuel, uh, that were used to develop cultural um, stereotypes that fueled the racism. As I mentioned before, the Chinese were considered to be an economic threat because they were quite skilled at shallow alluvial mining. As you can see from this particular petition, um, the Chinese were taking that um, accusation into account and explaining, well, no, we don't take, send that much money back to, or gold back to China. One person takes a gold parcel for many others. Um, so it's not that much. And this, gold, this amount of gold is shared amongst the family. And also, again, saying, well, we're not that much making that much gold from washing um, the remains, the tailings of the gold, and the abandoned claims, as you think. Chinese were also accused of failing to contribute to the economic development of the colony. Now, this accusation came from um, the understanding that most Chinese were sojourners. They didn't intend to settle in the colony and they sent gold back to China. And the fact that China wasn't a British colony, Chinese success was painted as theft. They were stealing the Queen's gold. In the petitions, the Chinese um, answer back to this and say, well, we basically can't afford to buy... The accusation was, why aren't you buying land um, or farms? Things that suggest long-term settlement and contribution to the development of the colony. And they're saying, well, you know, we haven't got enough money to buy land or farms. They also um, claimed that they were contributing to the public revenue, to the economy, by paying all these taxes, rightly so, though some were evading it. Um, and they also sought to explain how they benefited the, econom the economy by purchasing goods from China, there would have been a tax on those, and through their consumption of European goods. The Chinese were accused of unnatural vices and abominable acts. Within the language of this time, this would have referred to homosexual acts and um, juvenile prostitution. This accusation came, apart, came about rather because the Chinese immigrants who came here during the gold rush were overwhelmingly a male population. There were hardly any, uh, any Chinese females on the gold fields. Uh, so, in answering back to that, the Chinese said, well, where's the evidence to support these assertions? They also explained the cultural misunderstanding as to why they left their wives back in China. Things like their wives' foot being, feet being bound so that it made it difficult to travel. They couldn't afford the trip for them to come here. And they also had cultural obligations to look after the, at their elderly who remained back in China. Chinese were also seen as a moral threat. As you can see from this petition from the local court in Fryers Creek, they said gambling and other vices too numerous and unfit to mention are rife among them. And there was a fear that this vi these vices, this immoral behaviour, would spread to the other um, parts of the population. So it wasn't the Europeans' fault that they might be moral, it was the Chinese' fault because <laughs> they were bringing it here with them. The Chinese response for this was, rightly, to say, well, where's the evidence to support all these accusations? Let's have an inquiry to either prove or disprove these allegations and then treat people accordingly. 
Um, and also, again, look at the evidence. The court records will prove that there's no evidence to substantiate um, these claims or that the Chinese are any more guilty of um, crime than other immigrants within the population. The, Chinese, the, the petitions, um, besides enabling us to challenge these stereotypes that existed about the Chinese during this time, also enable us to explore some variations within the Chinese experience. If we want to break those stereotypes and we can't look at the group as one homogenous group. And we do this by looking at um, absences and presences, so, so to speak. Um, in 1858, the, Chi the Ballarat Chinese sent a petition. This was the only petition for this particular year and the request was quite unique. They weren't asking to be treated the same as all other immigrants. They were asking for um, extra time to pay the first instalment of the tax. Now, to understand why the Chinese in Ballarat would do that, you have to know that um, the Chinese in Ballarat would have been involved in deep sinking, moving beyond shallow alluvial mining and going into somewhat deep lead mining. And this would have involved significant investment in time, money and energy. So if they had their mining claim taken from them, then it would have been a significant loss. So, for example, Chinese miners working on the Red Streak lead in Ballarat paid £90 for an abandoned mining claim. They erected machinery in order to go deeper. They were quite successful. And then they had their mining claim taken from them the day after the legislation came into place. So significant losses for the Chinese in Ballarat because of the type of mining that they were involved in where on other gold fields, they weren't necessarily involved in deep lead mining. Differences also emerged between the Chinese in Melbourne and Chinese on the gold fields. In mid-1859, Chinese in Ballarat, Bendigo and Castlemaine sent petitions to the governor, so did, the, so did Melbourne. Um, the gold fields, Chi Chinese on the gold fields are asking for a reduction in the tax, while Melbourne, Chinese um, request an exemption of the residence tax. They were basically saying, we don't live on the gold fields where we're expected to live under a Chinese protectorate system, so we shouldn't have to pay for a tax that funds a system that we don't use. Fair enough argument. By late 1859, they're sending positions to the Legislative Assembly. Um, the Chinese are asking for the removal of the residence tax. It's just far too harsh and they can't pay. And the Melbourne Chinese requested a reduction in the residence tax and the removal of the immigration poll tax. Now, to understand why the difference in requests, you have to recognise that um, the majority of Chinese in Melbourne were either merchants, artisans or traders. So they're regularly, tra um, regularly travelling between China and Victoria and in doing so, they have to pay that £10 immigration poll tax every time they enter the colony. So that's more of a significant burden for them. The petitions that the Castlemaine and Bendigo Chinese sent in 1859, late 1859, also tell us how harsh and difficult the circumstances were during, um, on those particular goldfields. 
the Bendigo Chinese said, the old license tax, the old license tax system with all of its degrading attributes has been reenacted among us. Policemen daily meet us at our work and demand a sight of our residence tickets. Hundreds of our unfortunate countrymen have been taken away from their daily avocations and marched through the public streets in, custody of, in the custody of police officers like common felons to prison because they were too poor to pay the, for a licence. Hundreds of your petitioners have, ooh, sorry, have been sent in company with the most abandoned criminals to sweep pathways and other similar degrading occupations with policemen standing sentry over them with fixed bayonets. And the conditions and the, in um, Castlemaine weren't much better than that either. When we explore the Chinese protests, one of the questions that inevitably comes about is, were the Chinese successful? Did their protests lead to the removal of the discriminatory legislation? The legislation is eventually, um, is gradually dismantled in the early 1860s. Um, by this time, the Chinese immigration uh, population in Victoria has declined, but the Chinese aren't paying the tax taxes, and so they're rendering the system inoperable because the taxes pay for the protectorate system to operate and the collection of the taxes. So, while the petitions uh, may not have been effective in helping the Chinese remove the discriminatory legislation, they're extremely important to us today and they're a powerful tool in understanding um, the Chinese voice, the Chinese perspective, which is quite rare um, to gain, gain a glimpse of during the 19th century. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but one of the largest has over 5,000 signatures. I think that's the Bendigo one, which is um, yeah, quite a significant level of support. Others are around 3,000, 2,000. Um, so, um, but if you go to the article Finding the Chinese Perspective, it lists how many ch Chinese signatures are in each petition and where you can find them as well, because some of them were published in parliamentary papers, others weren't. Some you can only find in newspapers. Um, it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle to try and get them all together. You've been listening to the podcast Look History in the Eye. To search for Chinese petitions in our catalogue, you can search for Look History in the Eye online or simply type in Chinese petitions on our catalogue.